Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Beyond Prisons podcast, where we examine incarceration from an abolitionist perspective and elevate the voices of people directly impacted by the system. I am your host, Brian Sonstein, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Kim Wilson. Hey, Kim. Hey, Brian. How's it going this week? It's going well. I am, as always, really excited for our conversation. Uh, It's been a couple weeks since we've talked, so I'm excited to be back at it, and I apologize to people who may have been looking out for a new episode, but here we have it, and I'm excited to get to it. Um, indeed, indeed. So who are we well, talking to today? We're talking to Maya Shenwar today of Truth Out. Maya Shenwar is the author of the book Lockdown, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better, and a co-editor of Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. She is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. She has written about the prison industrial complex for Truth Out, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, Salon, Ms. Magazine, and others. Maya lives in Chicago and organizes with Love and Protect and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. So Kim, do you wanna just kick it off? Absolutely. Um, So I have some questions here. And the first one is, uh, what motivated you to write the book? So I'd been writing about prison as a journalist for about, I guess, seven or eight years when I decided to write the book. And I had been covering it as a reporter and then commissioning articles, editing articles, writing columns when I became an editor. And the reason that I had gotten into it was, of course, because I had a personal connection to it. And I think I actually started writing about prison when my when my sister went to juvenile detention so it was like it was always this personal thing for me but i had never put that into writing and then when my sister went back to prison i guess it was like in 2012 I realized that i <laughs> i was kind of living in this this dual reality like writing about prison as a reporter. And you know, we have this weird thing we do with journalism and I don't think it's very natural or even very honest where we pretend that the author or the journalist is invisible, you know, and that's supposed to be professional. Like that's what you do if you're being a professional. And I think that that's, there's something really wrong with that. I think it's connected with capitalism and colonialism and all kinds of things but I kind of decided that I had to stop doing that if I was going to talk about prison in a way that made sense to me and I was encouraged by people I was corresponding with in prison because I had been also corresponding with pen pals over the years in addition to you know having having the experience with my family and they were like you know, this is the way that Truth Out covers prison, you know, like, they were appreciative of it, but they also felt like it was lacking in humanity. So Mm. that was, you know, one of the goals of my book was to bring to life, like, not only my sister's experience and my family's experience, but also the experiences of other people that, that I knew who were incarcerated. And to demonstrate, you know, this isn't just about quote unquote politics. This is about people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Could you talk a little bit more about pen paling? Um, you know, I noticed that that's, that's a, a major source for your book is um, through a lot of your correspondence with people on the inside. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in it, your experiences with it, um, and the role that it plays in your book? Yeah, definitely. So for me, it's funny, it kind of comes out of this, this issue of being a journalist covering prison. So when I first started writing about prison, I, I was covering um, activism happening on death row in Texas. And so I wrote to people on death row who were on hunger strike. And this was in 2005. And I quickly found that when you write to people in prison, very often they keep writing to you, you know, um, particularly when they're extremely isolated, like so many people right. on death row are. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I know that the practice as a journalist is you kind of treat your interview subjects as research subjects very often, you know, and like, it's not quote unquote professional to keep in touch with them afterwards. And of course, unless they're the police and then you're supposed to be <laughs> them somehow. <laughs> Mm, but, that um, tells you something, right? Right, right, exactly. So, so yeah, so I, I decided to just keep in touch with people that I was corresponding with as a journalist. And to me, that, that pen pal relationship that, that grew out of that first story was, for me, more transformative than actually writing the story, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? because people are really living this experience every day. It's not like an isolated political happening. And actually, I, the pen pal that I, that I was first in touch with ended up being executed in 2011. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, his, his story ended that way. And yeah. it was a tragedy, you know, a real tragedy. And, um, and so, yeah, I, one of the action steps that I often recommend to people when they're just like, what can I do? Particularly if they're people who are not connected to the system in any way and they, they want to start getting involved, like one of the first things that I suggest people do is to get a pen pal and, and make a connection, you know, mm -hmm. and I consider that a political step as well as a personal one. Yeah. I want to go back for a moment because, ironically, before you jumped on the, the call, Brian and I had been talking about this, and I uh, raised the issue of uh, this notion of the unbiased researcher, right? Yeah. And the one, uh, one of the things, one of the many things that I uh, appreciate about your book is that you do collapse that, you know, invisible line between, you know, being... Uh, detached um, and, or engaged, right? And you're like, okay, no, I am part of this narrative. I am part of this story. This is not only happening to me personally, but, you know, the way I'm thinking about this. So I, I really appreciated that. And uh, thinking about, you know, this notion of how journalists specifically are supposed to be disengaged, um, you know, not disengaged, but uh, detached or keep their uh, topics, subjects, issues that they're writing about at arm's length. Um, mm -hmm. Do you mind talking about that just a little bit more? Because I think that there's, you know, there's a lot there. And this is something that 
you capture really well in the book. Um, and I don't just want to skip over it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate that about your writing too, by the way. And I think that it's, it's something that I continue to come up against and struggle with as an editor as well as a writer because this, this notion of objectivity is really prized in the journalistic world, um, particularly in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this thing, I mean, the reason I, I talk about it like kind of in terms of, of colonialism and, and capitalism and white supremacy is that it's the idea is that it's a fly on the wall and the reporter mm -hmm. is invisible and so doesn't have a perspective or a bias. But of course the perspective and the bias are um, you know, the status quo and the forces right. of power, mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, it's, it's customary to befriend the police. And actually, you know, I, I didn't go to journalism school or anything, but, but I did take a couple of journalist, journalism classes <laughs> before mm -hmm. I jumped in. And I was shocked that like the first thing that we learned, and this was something that I found even with reporters coming to truth out over the years, that the first thing they said was, you know, you develop connections with your local police department. You know, those are the people you're supposed to befriend. Those are your sources. And then they contact you if something happens because of course crime is a story. Um, and <laughs> to me, I look at that and I say, what's objective about that? You know, mm -hmm. that, that's a perspective, but it's, it's something that's kind of built in that the press release that you get from the police department or the city, those are things that are considered facts, mm -hmm. you know? And actually I've found when, I, when I've written for mainstream sources, um, mainstream publications, they, they will fact check my work by looking at court records, right? And looking mm -hmm. at police reports. And then they say, oh, well, this doesn't fit, like this is factually inaccurate. And I say, no, this is what the incarcerated person is saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? So you're fact checking it by looking at the court documents that, that actually doesn't tell you the truth, that tells you what's been documented by the system. And there's just this chafing there, you know? And I actually, something I wrote for, a well-known mainstream publication that I won't name. Actually, they took they took someone out of the story that I had written because they said, well, this person is not sympathetic according to the court documents. And so if anyone looks up this person and you know wants to dig into their story, they're gonna find things that reflect very badly upon that person. And that's not sympathetic. So that's not going to help accomplish your point. And I found that so revealing of kind of like the journalistic standard. Yeah. That, you know, that it's like you're, it's intentionally erasing so many people because mm -hmm. you're supposed to be holding up these examples of phenomena. So even if you're supposed to be like, you know, the progressive journalist or like, 
the journalist reporting objectively, but yet from from this progressive vantage, mm-hmm. you're you're still supposed to be supporting yourself and supporting your arguments with the system, you know, yeah. <laughs> like with information validated by the system. So so yeah, and and so I think that view from nowhere is a view from power. Mm-hmm. And I think that as as an editor, what I've tried to do is to kind of kind of grapple with that in the face of also wanting to be taken seriously as a publication. Mm-hmm. And and that's a struggle because you can you can kind of throw objectivity out the window, but then you also have to acknowledge that like, you're not going to be seen the same way a lot of publications are seen. And I think that that's kind of the place we've gone with truth out Mm -hmm. is we've kind of said, fuck it, you know, in that, in that way. And um, I think that for me, that actually had a lot to do with just covering the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. It was like, I, I don't believe that we can pretend to do this thing that we're quote unquote supposed to be doing and cover the criminal legal system responsibly. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't believe we can do it. And so I think that like what's encouraging right now is that journalism like as a field has been a little bit eroded. And I think like some people would say this is a tragedy, right? That like, newspapers are fading a little bit and you know traditional media have less less pull right now because of social media and to me I'm like okay you know social media obviously there are a million problems with it but it's also you know helping to lift up voices that might not have been heard otherwise like empowering people to make their own media you know people are making their own media in all kinds of different ways online and so I think I think we are seeing shifts and I I just would hope that the direction that things go is kind of letting those shifts happen as opposed to this constant push to like bring back mainstream journalism, which I feel like even on the left is is still happening really strongly. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you saw this thing about like support the New York Times and the Washington Post in the face <laughs> of Trump. And I'm like, why? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and then at the other end you have, you know, oh that's fake news. Right, right. It's it's just, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. I mean, I I just, uh, anyway, um, well, thank you for that. And, um, let's switch gears a little bit. I, uh, want to talk, um, and there's so much in your book, uh, to talk about. Um, but I want, uh, to hear a little bit more about, uh, incarcerated mothers mm-hmm. and uh you write a great deal about this uh both from you know a very personal perspective um but also in terms of telling other people's stories uh and honoring that and i think that that's uh another really uh important part of your book so can you say something about um incarcerated mothers yeah yeah absolutely i 
actually it's interesting since since this book came out i've become very involved in advocacy around incarcerated mothers um and i'm part of this group love and protect in chicago that specifically works to protect and defend incarcerated women and gender non-conforming people who are incarcerated for defending themselves so survivors and i think that the issue that comes up so often with incarcerated mothers is you talk about the issues they face and the issues faced by their children and you're met with this response of well they should have thought of that before they were locked up which of course right. we hear on all fronts right but with incarcerated mothers, I think it's there's this shaming that happens where it's like, well, you're a mother and you, you know, you did this to your child. And really so often mothers are incarcerated for mothering in all mm -hmm. kinds of different ways, you know, so people who are mothering in the face of extreme economic violence, you know, who are dealing with, with poverty, very often they're incarcerated for doing things that they did in the face of poverty, you know, mm -hmm. to try to provide for their children. They're incarcerated for defending themselves and their children against abu abusers. They're incarcerated for, you know, doing all kinds of things in the face of survival. And then once they're incarcerated, they, they face all these barriers to parenting, obviously, because parenting from within prison is a paradox. Mm -hmm. So and and so I think that this issue is really important to focus on, even though obviously the majority of people in prison aren't aren't mothers, but the majority of people in prison do have children. And then within women in prison, the majority are, are parents of young children, of minor children. And so when you go into a women's prison, almost everyone you talk to is going to mention their kids at one point or another, whether they're adult children or, or minor children, because, you know, these, these are the people that they're being separated from. And um, when my sister was incarcerated, when she went to the penitentiary the last time, she's been incarcerated since then, but the last time she was in the penitentiary, she was pregnant. And, you know, I had read a lot and learned a lot about the incarceration of mothers and still I was, I was completely shocked by this experience. <laughs> Yeah. And I think part of it is like pregnancy on the outside, you know, uh, is kind of like celebrated so much, you know, of course, yeah. for a right. lot of people. And inside it, the way my sister and, and so many others experienced it, it was like torture, you know, um, and Part of it, of course, was like the physical thing, like they're not giving you the things that you need to be at all like comfortable or, or nourished or any of the things that, that you might need as a pregnant person. In fact, the only thing that my sister got, which was so funny, was like she different 
color jumpsuit in prison. Hmm. And they told her that the reason why they needed her to have a different color jumpsuit was in order to um, distinguish her in case there were fights because then the person who was fighting with her would get in more trouble because she was pregnant. Hmm. And yeah. And the thing that they, that they kind of emphasized everything was about like, they didn't want the pregnancy to end because then they're afraid of being liable. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it's almost like protecting the fetus, you know what I mean? And then once she gave birth, of course, that was an issue. And, and one of the things, of course, for her, like the thing she was feeling most after giving birth was the loss of her child. But also after she gave birth, she had a million health problems and nothing was, nothing was treated. She was bleeding for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it was like nothing was done. And so it was like she was, of course, abandoned after that point. But her experience, her experience of both pregnancy and giving birth, I think has been repeated to me so many times over the years since, since it happened to her, which was, you know, everything is isolating. So she and choice is removed from the situation. So she didn't, she was not able to wait to go into labor naturally. They gave her a date. So, and they didn't even tell her what the date is because the whole thing was built around like preventing her from escaping, which is really laughable. The idea that you would use pregnancy as an opportunity to run away from prison. Like, as far as I know, that's actually never happened. Um, but even clearly- though. Yeah, not to cut you off. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I've been pregnant. Yeah. And I can tell you, when you're not nine months pregnant, A, you're not running. Okay. Right. I mean, you may have some people who are, you know, doing acro yoga and God knows right. what else in their ninth month. But for the most part, you just, it feels like you're going to explode, or at least I did. And right. the idea that, one, you know that when they're moving you, they shackle you, you know, right. not just your ankles, exactly. but your your hands as well, on top of being pregnant, right? Yes. So the idea that somehow you're going to Houdini your way out of the right. shackles, overtake right. the guards, the COs who are armed, who are escorting, and it's like, and it's not just one weakling little, you know, CO, it's usually a couple of people, exactly. if not more. You know, it's like to the hospital or to the maternity wing, if they, you know, if it's, if they have that arrangement within the prison, it's just ridiculous. Right. Ridiculous. So this idea that, you know, you're protecting or the public or that this is a safety risk or (laughs) an escape risk, it makes zero sense. You know, right. absolute zero sense in, in terms of policies that need to, you know, be done away with. This is certainly one of them because it's really one of the most cruel ways to deal with you know, women who are pregnant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what they did, of course, to prevent this 
quote unquote flight risk was they woke her up at four in the morning one day and it was kind of like around her due date. And they just said, get up. You're going to the hospital. You're giving birth. And she was like, no, no, I'm not. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm not having contractions. Like I know that I'm not, that I'm not supposed to be going into labor right now. And they said, no, you're going there. And they took her against her will. And they actually told her that she would be punished if she kind of protested anymore, if she continued saying no, which of course would have meant going to solitary like after she got back. Mm -hmm. So, So they shackled her. They took her to the hospital. And they basically jailed her inside the hospital. So, you know, people always ask me, oh, were you, were you able to go? No, they wouldn't let my family anywhere near the hospital. Like we couldn't have come in the hospital that day. Um, they, they had her in a hospital room. The only person allowed in there besides medical personnel was a guard. So they had a guard in the room, outside the room, outside the hospital and and um they had this guard just watching her the whole time so over 24 hours just watching her while labor is being induced and they and she said at one point the guard was just sitting there eating chips and staring at her and she's of course in enormous pain And so in Illinois, there's a law that says you can't be shackled during childbirth. So you can't be shackled while you're giving birth. But what they did for her was when she finally gave birth, as soon as the baby came out, as soon as my niece was born, they shackled my sister to the bedpost. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard for her to even hold her baby, like Mm -hmm. once the baby. And... Then they said she would have one phone call after she gave birth to just let us know, you know, because we were worried. We were kind of standing by the phone. And, um, but the warden was not at the prison that day. And the warden had to authorize the phone call. So she wasn't even able to call us after my niece had been born, her first child, you know. And... And so we were just sitting there, like we thought something awful happened because it had been so long. And finally, my mom was able to get through to someone at the prison. And he said, you know, like the COs always make you feel like if they tell you anything, then they're doing you this enormous favor. Mm-hmm. So the CEO finally was like, well, I'm not supposed to say anything, but you know, yes, the baby was born and, you know, told us like the information that he had, which was very, very limited. And, and it was, so that was how we found out. And then, so my sister was allowed to spend a little over 24 hours with her baby at the hospital. And they took a couple pictures of her with her baby. And then she was taken back to prison by herself and her sentence, she still had a few more months on her sentence. So she was there alone, of course, knowing the whole time that she didn't know whether she would be reunited with my niece when she got out, because that's, that's the way the system works, is that 
they, you know, you're at risk for your baby going into foster care if you're, if you're coming out of prison after having given birth. So, so that's, that's what people have to contend with. And of course, in many ways, she was lucky because she only had a few months on her sentence after that, you know, mm -hmm. right. Many, well, many, many women who yeah. are go yeah. much greater ordeal. And, and she also had family that exactly. could and would support her and her daughter um, right. when, you know, when, uh, when they needed it. Um, yeah. And I, I got to tell you, I, this is one of the toughest parts of uh, the book to read uh, for me, or it was yeah. for me, uh, because I, I was just, oh, my God, I was angry. I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm generally angry, and I think that that's just yeah. the way I, I operate in this world, <laughs> is just being pissed off most of the time. Um, <laughs> I I read that, and I, I just, oh, my God. I, you know, I, I think that's when I sent you that, that DM, and I was yeah. just like, oh, my God. I said, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the rest of the yeah. book. I, I'm, I'm just, it, it was. <laughs> It, oh, it, it was so difficult, but um, yeah. one yeah. of the things that I, I want to highlight um, as you're, you know, you just described what happened uh, with your sister and what happens with so many women is that, you know, these one, and, and we make the distinction oftentimes between, you know, violent and nonviolent uh, right. prisoners, um, which you know, in a lot of ways is really just ridiculous um, right. for, for many reasons. And we can attend to that at some other point. But, you know, when you describe the level of security, right, around your sister, um, it, I think it's important for people to know that she was not a violent offender, that at <laughs> no point had she really, you know, she didn't go to prison because of a violent offense. She hadn't attacked any of the COs or anyone else there. So the level of security around, you know, a woman who is being forced to give birth. I mean, my God, it's like it, we talk about, you know, what they do to people's bodies in prison. Yeah. Um, this yeah. certainly illustrates that. And, you know, um, I'm sure we can uh, have you back on to talk about um about this this issue a little bit further uh there's also a racial component here um yeah. as well because you know um your sister's white and what happens uh oftentimes with you know black and brown women um is is just as horrific um and sometimes even more violent uh because oftentimes they're not even given you know the the treatment or mm -hmm. attention um and there have been cases of women giving birth in the prison cell and yes and dying um along right. with you know with with the fetus um so it, it just i don't even know where i was going with that i i just think it's um it's horrific it's one of many ways in which uh the prison system um tears people apart, tears families apart. I mean, not being able to have, you know, your close family around you, you know, her mom, you, um, yeah. for 
for this really important moment, right? Like, okay, you're in prison, but if you're really trying to help people, um, and I'm using that term very loosely, we all know, um, right? it would make sense to do whatever you can to facilitate having those people that bring you comfort right mm-hmm. there with you through these moments and not just using this sort of knee-jerk kind of response and saying, okay, we're going to, you know, tear apart this mother and child. I mean, right, right. after birth, right after right. birth, like the, the violence of that, you know, should make people sick. Yeah, right? I have, I actually, I have a passage open that I was going to raise up here, Maya, that I, I just wondered if you would respond to, but I thought it was good. Um, and it's, you, you start off, you go, for prisoners who have already been severed from their communities, the mother-baby bond can forge a key path to societal reconnection heightening their chances of avoiding reoffense and recidivism. Conversely, severing the bond can feel like yet another way and perhaps the most painful way they've been cut off from the free world. So yeah, I was just wondering, you know, if you had if you had anything else to say on that and and the struggles of newly released moms, uh, you know, on top of the experience of being pregnant and having to give birth while you're incarcerated. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that like Kim was saying, it kind of belies this idea of rehabilitation, right? Like a lot of correctional systems now, quote unquote, have added rehabilitation to their names. So it's like the state correctional and rehabilitation system, that's the system. And it's like, this is just one of many, many ways in which it's demonstrated that that's just a fallacy. That when you break up particularly a mother and a newborn child, you are saying this person should not be reconnected with society. This person should be isolated and separated and shamed and disposed of, you know? And I think for me, like one of the most useful people to read in in understanding like motherhood and connection with the prison system and other punitive systems in our society is Dorothy Roberts, who writes about, particularly about black mothers and foster care and, and in connection with prison also. And she writes about how this system is not set up to reunite mothers and children. It was actually, it, evolved and was created out of slavery and it was actually built for separation you know and it was built in a way in which it's saying children are actually better off without their mothers in this circumstance you know so whether through the foster care system predominantly it's black mothers um and also of course in the prison system disproportionately it's black mothers Um, In my sister's case, you know, she was addicted to heroin and it's that's that's a thing where it's actually built into the legal system that, you know, children are better off without their mothers if their mothers have drug dependencies, you know, and so actually when when my niece was in the hospital after my sister had gone home home gone back to prison 
Um, we came, we visited my niece, you know, we were allowed to come visit after a couple of days after my sister had gone back to prison. And the way in which she was being treated was so weird. It was at this hospital where there were a lot of volunteers from the surrounding areas who were coming in through their church groups. And they kind of viewed my niece as someone who had been saved from my sister, you know, that it was actually the separation was the goal, you know? And I think that that's, that's what happens so often with the children of incarcerated mothers, that it's like the, the priority is the opposite of reunification. And of course, like, I think it needs to be said that that's bad. <laughs> You know, right. Yeah. But that's actually fundamentally evil and racist. And it's also something that like shows us that this system it can't just be reformed, right? You can't right. say, Oh, okay, well, you know, in that case, we should make sure that that mothers are able to keep in touch with their children better from within prison because it's like, okay, well, the entire system is built on separating them, is mm -hmm. built on disposing of the mothers. And in some cases, like in my, in my niece's case, I think with this white baby who ended up in this, in this hospital, like, oh, well, she's one that we're gonna save, you know, from her mother. And in so many cases with black and brown babies, like the foster care system, you know? Right. And I think particularly in thinking about which babies have families that they can be placed with, very, very often families are willing to take the babies and want to take the babies of, of their family members within prison but the conditions that they put on you to be able to accept a child very often exclude people who are targeted by police and by incarceration. So they'll say, well, if you have any um, prior offenses on your criminal record, then you can't take the baby. So for example, my niece's um, grandparents on, on her other side, uh, wanted to take my niece, you know, they like had a setup where they were like, okay, we could, we could take her for the next three months, you know? And that was kind of the initial plan. And because then my niece would have been able to be with her father right. and, and they said no. <laughs> and so I think, it, it was a very it was a very weird situation because the no was because my niece's grandfather had um, I think it was a gun offense on his record and they said oh he's a violent offender she can't stay there even though it would have been probably like the best place for her to be during that time and so in families where there's not immediately a household where no one has a criminal record, then very often those babies are funneled into the foster care system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, passage I'm looking at here, um, and it's on page 86, uh, is the one where you, you write about uh, 
or it says, I'll just read it. Scholar Beth Ritchie points to child protective services as yet another arm of the prison nation, using Mm -hmm. stringent regulations, surveillance, and policing to punish women, particularly black women, poor women, and single mothers by taking away their kids, right? And right before that, you describe, you know, what happened with your, um, with your sister and child protective services coming in uh, to, you know, basically uh do that visit you know right after the birth and and not sure that you know she would be reunited with her child um so you know we look at these agencies oftentimes as as you pointed out um being um saving kids right and people say oh we need we need more of this right um but we we fall short in the analysis if we don't look at how these agencies are part of the prison industrial complex and how they function to further erode, not build family ties and family connections and to facilitate that, right? So if you're, as you pointed out with, uh, with your niece uh, and her grandfather, you know, if, if you're basically going to exclude anyone that has a previous conviction, violent or not violent, uh, it doesn't, you know, if, if it's, right. unless it's, um, and I hate even putting these caveats uh, on there, but um, if it doesn't have anything to do with endangering children, we'll put it that way, um, right. then it doesn't make sense, right. right? So if you have a gun charge or, you know, a drug charge or something like that, it's like, there's a big difference between you selling crack to two-year-olds or... Right. You know, if you can even do that, I mean, it's a ridiculous example. Or, you know, it's like you're talking about you were smoking crack yourself. Like, right. you're not, it, it, like, we right. treat every offense, you know, with such broad strokes. We don't look at the nuance, not only mm-hmm. in the legal system, but also through these agencies, like it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. And one of the things that, you know, uh, until we can get rid of this, right? (laughs) One of the things that might be helpful is to, you know, context matters, right? Mm -hmm. And things are situation specific. And if we are really truly trying to do what's in the best interest of all of these children, um, then we need a different approach and what we have isn't working, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have come to, I mean, I've been suspicious of the child protective services system for a long time, obviously. And I think that, that it's evolved out of the prison industrial complex and in connection with it. But over the past two years, actually, I've come to see kind of even more of its underbelly. And I feel like this is a field that is really, like, really, there's so few people writing about it and talking about it. And I think it is because it predominantly affects Black women. And there is no one studying this system besides Black women. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's not covered in the newspaper. The, the ways in which it's covered in the newspaper are basically, like, it's good, and then sometimes foster parents are abusive. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the system is not questioned at all, except 
um, by certain really important scholars like Dorothy Roberts, Charity Tolliver, um, Beth Ritchie. But it's mm -hmm. like, it's just not taken seriously as something to center in, in any like mainstream organizations or publications. And I've been thinking about it like really intensively because my niece actually for the past two years has been really embroiled in this system um, as a result of actually a huge tragedy in my family. And I'll try to be brief about this, but I think it illustrates how horrifying the system is. So, and particularly in connection with anyone who has a criminal record or has been incarcerated for any period of time. And so a couple of years ago, I guess, I guess now it was summer of 2015, my sister had another child. Um, and when my second niece was born, which I guess was early August 2015, um, they, they immediately, the Child Protective Services came and was kind of surveilling her immediately because, you know, she had had so much involvement with the criminal system and also had a record of drug dependency and opiate dependency. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, there's a lot, it's, it's very strange the way that this country has responded to the quote unquote opiate crisis. Because when my first, when my sister first started being incarcerated for this, it was something that was, you know, always punished. There was not any kind of like disguise of rehabilitation or, or whatever around opiate addiction. And now that it's become kind of like associated with wealthy or upper middle class white suburban youth, there's been this kind of push to recognize it as like, you know, addiction is an illness and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it's still criminalized. And it's particularly criminalized for people who kind of have had involvement with the system in other ways. And my sister has been, you know, going to jail in prison since she was 15. And um, I think that, that so the way that, the way that she's been responded to has, has not been very caring or rehabilitative at all. And so this, this last thing, so basically Child Protective Services was immediately kind of surveilling the situation. They came to the hospital. Um, they actually were trying to figure out whether they should make the father of of my niece the primary guardian or, or whatever their their phrasing was. And so this was all in process. And then a little over a month later, my niece died. My my niece who had just been born. Um yeah, she died. Thank you. Yeah. And it was SIDS. It was this very tragic, you know, sudden infant death syndrome where the baby just 
dies in their crib, you know? So she was sleeping and then she was dead. And it was, you know, it was just the saddest thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And um, so when my sister went to pick up my niece and, you know, she realized immediately that, that she was dead, but she screamed and she, she was staying with my, with my mom at the time, actually, um, with her two kids. And she screamed for my mom to call 911 to, you know, have the paramedics come. And so called nine, so my mom called 911. Paramedics came and then eight police officers came. And so my mom called me right after she called 911. I, I went over there immediately. And there were police just surrounding the place. And I, I went in and there were just police in every room. And I was like, what's going on here? And, and they had taken the baby away to the hospital. And my sister was basically like incarcerated in her bedroom. Like there was yeah. police yeah, officers standing the at the door. Because basically what they're saying without actually coming out to say it is that they suspect your sister had something to do with your niece's death. And right. that, you know, it, it couldn't possibly be an accident. So she is exactly. always suspect, which makes right. it extremely difficult to parent because you're always parenting from a place of fear. Because if yes. your child is at the playground and they fall down and they break their arm and you end up in the ER, Right. And, you know, then that automatically triggers a whole set of, you know, processes uh, that they are legally required to do. So it's like they call social services, social services comes in interviews, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and would have to, you know, there would have to be an investigation and everything. So mothers who are in this position are always suspect right? They're always suspect and they can never, it's as if, you know, you'd have to put your child in a bubble suit um, and and hope and cross your fingers that nothing ever happens. And you have to walk a line that is impossible to walk. Like, you know, if if they fall at home and they bump their head and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I should go get them checked out and take them to the pediatrician. The pediatrician would have to say, you know, something because they would be obligated to say something, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We have all of these different ways of surveilling uh, formerly incarcerated people that prevent them from ever actually moving forward. So instead of coming together and saying, my God, this is a tragedy. This poor young woman has suffered enough. Her family has suffered enough. What do we do? we send in eight cops. Yeah. Like how, how does that help? I mean, that doesn't do anything, you know, especially in a moment of deep crisis of deep tragedy. It's like, it piles on to that tragedy and it makes God. I I mean, it's like, I'm I'm so, I'm I'm so angry just listening to this and, and just, you know, but one of the questions that I had was, um, and, and I scratched it off because I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't know if you 
didn't want to give anything away at the end of the book or whatever. Um, but, you know, was to ask you how your sister and, and, uh, and your niece are doing now. Um, and, you know, it just, because God, it, it just, Lord, I can't even, I don't even know what to say. I'm, 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 I was angry before Maya. I'm pissed yeah. now. Jesus. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I need, I need some alcohol at this point. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's so sad because when my sister first got out of prison and was reunited with my niece, it was like she got a whole new life. You know, she just, I mean, she had a lot of restrictions on her. She was on parole and everything, but she was just, you know, so in love with her daughter that she was really recommitted to, to building a life for herself. And she was actually doing pretty well. And, you know, I think was about to get off of finally off of the supervision of DCFS or child services. And then this happened. Um, and after this happened, they actually, because they suspected my sister and of course DCFS, it's like, in some ways it's even more bizarre than the police because if they just suspect you of something, then they can, basically convict you of it. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't have to have evidence. Mm -hmm. And so because um, they suspected my sister of, you know, somehow doing something to my niece, which there was never ever any evidence for, um, and didn't happen, you know, I was actually there the night um, before, before all of this happened. But yeah, so because of this, they took away my older niece and my niece, Anyala, and who's Angelica in the book. And um, so she, right, so they, they took her away and they placed her with her grandparents, ironically, the ones that they wouldn't place her with when... <laughs> when my sister was incarcerated Lord, see that right there is some bullshit that's that i know that's just like that tells you that this had nothing to do with nothing exactly seriously exactly i mean that that's what it comes down to it's some bullshit right you know? right so they took her away they wouldn't let her stay with my parents or with me because um they said we were associated with the incident and actually child services was investigating my parents for a while. Mm. Um, the police took everything out of their house. Like they, they still have half their stuff. And this was almost two years ago. They won't give back like a lot of their stuff. And they, and so my niece is still, um, is still away from my sister. And now like, I'm able to visit her. My parents are able to visit her and my sister is able to visit her in a regulated way. But my sister has really, and she's comfortable sharing this, like she's, she's really been negatively. <laughs> I mean, that's the understatement of the century, but mm -hmm. negatively affected by this and has struggled a lot since it happened and has been back to jail um, and is now, fighting a couple of cases for kind of just similar things of 
um, you know, retail theft. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just been the biggest blow to have her child taken away when, you know, when she got out, she said, I have something to live for. You know, yeah. I have my right. daughter to live for. And so because of that, you know, she, she felt really strongly about working to, to stay in recovery. And then the system just, you know, it tore everything out from under her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, the system basically just said, well, fuck you. It doesn't matter what, right. You, right. what your plans are. Exactly. You know? And this is, this is the frustrating part. And you described this in the book earlier as well, that, you know, it's like um, in, in a conversation or the letter writing between you and your sister about, you know, the future plans. This is in one of her early um, incarcerations, I think it was. And, you know, where you'd been sort of, talking about you know what you would do when she got home you know yeah. and and it, it you can plan for whatever you want you right. know and this is um something that so many people are struggling with right now and I could name probably 30 40 people off the top of my head no lie um mm -hmm. who you know have come out of prison and every day it doesn't matter what they planned it doesn't matter what they planned the, things can be snatched from mm -hmm. you know right from under you in a moment you could right. be you know living your life which is basically what your sister was doing and right. something happened that was beyond her control so we're right. placing upon people expectations that no one human can possibly live up to Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. No one who's never had a record could possibly yes. have these <laughs> expectations. But right. now we're, you know, adding a, a layer and another level to this by saying, okay, well, you've been to prison and you, you know, did all these, you know, quote unquote horrible things. So now we're going to make it even more difficult. And we're gonna, you know, like right. we're expecting people to be superhuman. Yeah. And to, you know, it, it require of them something that we don't require of other people, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Like, without providing any of the resources that would actually support them in living their lives, you know? Right. So it's, like, fewer resources, higher expectations. It's, like, and any anything that happens to you in your life is held against you yeah right. and not just against it not just against you but against the entire family because yes. it's like you know you're it the the consequences spill over into everyone else that is part of your network if those people are around if that network exists right it's like right. it impacts like you said you know your family your mother your father you Exactly. In, in ways that we don't often talk about and describe. Um, but we're, we're running up against time here. And my God, I, I think Brian and I both have like, you know, a hundred other questions. That <laughs> yeah. Have, you know, it's like if we had five hours with you, we would love to ask you and, you know, maybe we can do, um, do another more, you know, maybe we can workshop the book. That's what we need to do. Yeah. This yeah. Be grateful for this conversation. So cool. Um, <laughs> 
But we, you know, we ask uh, all our guests, uh, what does abolition look like uh, to them? And uh, posing that question to you. Yeah. So for me, I've come more and more to understand abolition as something that's about building, you know. So I think on the one hand, of course, it's about chipping away at the walls. It's about decarceration. And it's about shrinking the prison system until, you know, it doesn't exist. I think that that's essential and it's something that I do in a lot of my organizing work is, you know, I'm part of the Chicago Community Bond Fund. I participate in a lot of defense committee work. And this is about, you know, shrinking the system, decarceration, making sure that, that we're actually decreasing the numbers of people who are incarcerated. But at the same time, I think that some of the things that we are getting at at the end here about just like the total lack of support for people, um, that's something that needs to be addressed by an abolitionist framework as well. And so we need to be thinking about how do we build structures in our communities for dealing with harm and conflict and violence and I, not just interpersonal harm and conflict and violence, but also, you know, structural harm. So, you know, how do we build up on our, our communities in ways in which people's health and people's lives and people's joy is facilitated, mm -hmm. you know? And I think like some of the conversations that are happening now around healthcare, you know, I see that as part of abolition. Like, I don't think you can have an abolitionist society in which large numbers of people don't have health care just because they don't have money, you know, mm -hmm. and good, good health care, you know, and mental health care and things like child care and education and the arts. Like, to me, these, these are abolitionist values that we need to be prioritizing these things and making sure that they're things that are not only accessible to like certain segments of like the white middle and upper class. And I think that, that there's also like when we, when we talk about abolition, we have to conceive of it as something that's, that's not just like the abolition of buildings that are called prisons, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Because right now we see people, you know, as states try to reduce their prison budgets, we just see enormous numbers of people being put on electronic monitoring. Yeah. We kept on house arrest, you know, and we see this at the county level too. Like they're trying to reduce the number of people in Cook County Jail in Chicago. And with some of these people, particularly if they're white, they'll say, okay, well, then they're not incarcerated, we're releasing them in an I-bond, but then they're putting enormous numbers of black and brown people on electronic monitoring and basically incarcerating people in their houses. Right. With even, I mean, it's bizarre, but like even fewer resources. So they'll say, you're incarcerated in your house and you're not allowed to go grocery shopping. Right. And you're not allowed to go to your job, which would actually give you money to buy food and like, mm -hmm you know, no way to get healthcare and stuff like that. So I think we really need to be thinking about abolition as a broader thing that's about 
ending the whole network of confinement and surveillance and policing and moving toward a system of court and like really bolstering not only like um, services, but also finding ways to facilitate the bonds between people instead of tearing people apart. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, there's a final uh, passage that I'd like to read from your book. It's uh, on page 195, you wrote, but really effective treatment means, I'm sorry, uh, but really effective treatment means bringing people out of isolation not imposing more of it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Maya. This was, um, you know, I'm really grateful for the conversation today, and I hope we can have you on again in the future. Um, And we look forward to reading your work. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. much. Oh, thank you you so much. Wonderful questions. Thank Thank you. you. Have a good one. Thanks, Maya. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us again this week on Beyond Prisons. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find me on Twitter at phillyprof03. And you can find me on Twitter at bsonnenstein. Our uh, Twitter handle for the podcast is at beyond underscore prison, singular. And uh, you can also email us at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.